0: The doctrine of the church, of course, there are many different facets of the doctrine of the church, many different areas, uh, many different pl- practical spheres that we could investigate and talk about and, and, and really dive into deeply. Um, but when we back up and kind of get a 30,000 foot you know, view of what's going on with the doctrine of the church, usually historically, that doctrine has been divided into two parts— the universal church and the local church welcome to the baptist broadcast this is going to be an episode on the universal church we are found anywhere you get your podcasts podcast addict anchor.fm spotify itunes what have you if you're watching here on youtube please do not forget to click the bell for continued notifications and the bell did i say click the bell for continued notifications already? That was a mistake. Do not forget to click that red button down below to subscribe to the channel, and then click the bell for continued notifications. Okay, hopefully I can refrain from becoming tongue-tied the remainder of the episode. There's a lot of reading to do today. Uh, We're going to be looking at the doctrine of the universal church. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to look at the doctrine of the universal church is because there there are three, really three concerns I have. Number one is the reality of the universal church and what that means for us as Christians. Number two is the frequent abuse of the doctrine of the universal church, which has happened throughout history in various ways. And we can talk a little bit about that. And indeed, we will have instances or occasions to talk about that in the literature that we're going to read uh, today. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, there has, have been outright rejections of the universal church that are quite unqualified and troubling if you consider the church in relation to the doctrine of Christ, how the church is called the bride of Christ, and so on and so forth, all, 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 the issue of Catholicity and doctrine and um, the historical church, uh, historical theology, what have Christians always believed, and so on and so forth. All those issues kind of come to a fore. So this is a, actually a very important doctrine. It's a very practical doctrine. Uh, there are things, very important things, that we lose if we reject it outrightly. There are very troublesome abuses that occur if we pervert the doctrine, uh, and there are uh, immense blessings if we recognize what the doctrine is and we seek to honor it accordingly uh, within our uh, within our faith. And so... Um, What we're going to do is, because this is a Baptist podcast, we're going to look at Baptists on the Universal Church. I'm going to start with Charles Spurgeon, uh, then we're going to look at John Gill, uh, and then Benjamin Keach. Actually, no, I got that reversed. We're going to start with the oldest. That means we're going to start with Ben Keach. then we're going to look at Gill, then we're going to look at Charles Spurgeon. Uh, So we're going from oldest to newest. Uh, Charles Spurgeon ministering in the 19th century, Gill in the 18th century, and then Keach in the... Uh, In the 17th century, up through to the very beginning of the 1700s, the beginning of the 18th century. Uh, And so you have a nice kind of little uh, chronologically uh, representational sample group of Baptist theology here, moving from uh, basically moving through three centuries um, uh, from the 1600s to the uh, 1800s. So Uh, That's what we'll do. But but before I get to those, guys, I would like to start with Scripture. We realize that all of our doctrine, um, all of our, you know, creeds and confessions and things of that nature, all of those things spring from Scripture, ultimately. And so what I would like to do is I would like to begin by looking at some important and pertinent texts. I'm using these big headphones because my other ones have run out of batteries so um let's look at uh let's look first at uh, Ephesians 4 if you look at Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6 and there you read I therefore Paul says the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness with long suffering bearing with one another in love Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, and then he moves through these uh, various um, indicatives. uh, Beginning in verse four, there is one body and one spirit. Okay, elsewhere throughout Scripture, actually in Ephesians, the beginning of Ephesians needs to condition how we understand uh, Ephesians two and Ephesians four when when the word body is used. In Ephesians 1, we learn that the body is the church. And so that's the context of this. That's the context of Ephesians 2, with the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile in one body, being brought to God or reconciled to God in Christ into his body. So that's the church. And then here in Ephesians 4, that language hasn't changed in terms of its meaning. It's still contextualized by Ephesians 1 and 2. Um, there is one body, there is one church. If you read that text contextually, that's what you have to come away with. So there is one church or one body and one spirit. What accounts for the unity or the oneness of the body? It's the fact that it's united together uh, by one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope, so there's one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith— One baptism, so one Lord of the one body, uh, one faith, that is one true Orthodox Christian faith, that which is believed or must be believed unto salvation, one baptism in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we learn from Matthew 28, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, it's important to note that the language of the one body or the one church in Ephesians 4, 4 doesn't undermine the reality of particular congregations. Uh, there is, both realities exist in Scripture that there are particular congregations constituted by Scripture or according to Scripture over whom Christ is the the head ultimately and and uh, under Christ you have the ministers of the gospel, so elders and then deacons uh, that serve that ministry and then uh, the, the laity or the congregation, um, who make up the church, the local church, uh, but those those churches together, uh, plus the Christians in heaven um, and uh, Christians scattered throughout the world, uh, constitute the uh, the one body of Christ. All right, the one body of Christ. So. They could be particularly or peculiarly called one body, each local church can be, but ultimately they are part of a universal body of believers that are united to the one Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In other places we know that uh, Christ is the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, Um, and you can't have just one foundation for multiple buildings. One foundation corresponds to one edifice or one superstructure, and that is Uh, the one church of God, uh, of which Christ is the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets are the foundation. So there's one body and one spirit that doesn't negate the reality of local or particular uh, churches or congregations. Um, Another place we can look at, so that's Ephesians 4, that's kind of like the biblical doctrine of Catholicity right there stated in verses 4 through 6. The doctrine of unity, we might say. Uh, The word—that's all the word Catholic means, small c Catholic. Um, If you go to, let's see, if you go to, um, where else did I want to go here? Uh, Let's go ahead and do this. If you go to Hebrews twelve, Hebrews twelve—a very important text uh, that—that I think, of course, implies strongly, implies or necessitates even. Uh, The Doctrine of the Universal Church. Um, If you go to Ephesians 12 and you look at. And you look at verses 22 through 24. You will see uh, the following. But you have come to Mount Zion. Now that's in the perfect tense. Which indicates completion. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Now, all those descriptors coalesce together into that word "ecclesia" or church uh, here in Ephesians 12, verse 23, who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the Mediator of the New Covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So, this this is forward looking in this in the sense that there is a consummate reality to this when we are gathered together with the elect in heaven. Um, but at the same time, according to verse twenty two, there's a present subsistence uh, to this reality. But you have come to Mount Zion by faith. Of course, go back to Ephesians or Hebrews eleven that contextualizes Hebrews twelve. It is by faith we've come to Mount Zion. This Mount Zion, this glorious church, has been made present to us uh, by faith, Um, and so in that sense, you can say we have come to it. Okay, it is a inaugurated reality that still awaits uh, consummation, Uh, and uh, the use of the word church here is not in reference to any one local church. It's in reference to all these things that are listed here: uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable company of uh, angels, uh, which which could either mean, you know, angelic beings or the angelic host that participates with the church in worshiping God, or it could mean messengers, those who have preached the word of God in 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 prior times uh, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Okay. So basically that implicates uh, a universality uh, to the to the church. Uh, one more place that I would like to look at, and that is, um, let's see here. 1 Corinthians, uh, no, 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 hold on a minute. Let's see. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. In verse 13, you, you, you see Paul is recounting his former conduct in Judaism to use his language. And he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And then in... Uh, chapter 1, verses 22 to 24, he says, And I was known by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. So here you have reference to Paul on the one hand Uh, persecuting the church, that's a universal use, a singular use of the word church or ecclesia, persecuted the church. But later on in the chapter, verses 22 through 24, uh, you realize he was persecuting individual congregations, the churches of Judea. Uh, but he has no problem lumping all of those churches into a singular universal ascription, the church. And so uh, there is a doctrine of universality. These local churches considered together uh, constitute a part of the universal church. Uh, and there's several other places in Scripture we could go. Now, it's because of these uh, texts that the following men we're about to look at say what they say, um, and it's and it's because of these texts that uh, the church historical has maintained a doctrine of the universal or a doctrine of the Catholic Church. For example, in the Nicene Creed, uh, you have uh, that word Catholic Church. In the Apostles' Creed you have the same thing. Now that that terminology is not to be. Uh, understood in the same sense as the Roman Catholic Church. You, you notice that it doesn't say the Roman Catholic Church. It says the Catholic Church um, and apostolic church. And what it means by that is you believe in the one body of Christ, What what Spurgeon will call the universal apostolic church here in a moment, which is built upon a rock against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. I'm still using Spurgeon's terminology, but he's just seconding what the church has always believed, what Christians have always believed as a result of these texts and as a result of exegesis from the scriptures. Um, So with that said, let's go and turn to, um, first of all, uh, Benjamin Keach, and I've actually got some fancy slides to bring up here for you. Uh, Benjamin Keach will be the first one, and I've got several instances here. You see, uh, these are all coming from *Tropologia*, which is a work he did in um, uh, in tandem with Thomas Delon, uh, or in collaboration with Thomas Delon. And uh, he, there are several, there are several, there are several places in that work. Where he, uh, where he instances or or references the universal church, so he says this. Actually, let me get to where I can read this a little bit better. Okay, page four forty three of Tripologia. That's in my edition that I have uh, on Logos, but I also have a hard copy of it. I'm not sure if they're the same. Uh, but he says now the universal body of believers is the inheritance or clergy, if we must so call it, of God. Isaiah nineteen twenty five, which universal church is distributed into particular churches. So there he's saying essentially what Paul said in um, in uh, Galatians one, uh, that there's one universal church, but this is dist- the implication in Paul's words in Galatians one is that it's distributed into several. Particular churches, and then Keach continues, as it were, by lots or parts. Neither is the term anywhere in Scripture particularly attributed to the pastors of the churches. So he's wanting to guard. Um, he's wanting to guard against a sort of visualization of the institution of the universal church, namely to say that you know this universal church is not does not subsist in some kind of visible government or entity here on earth. The only head of this church is Jesus Christ and does not appear in a papacy. It doesn't appear in a king. It is not the bishopric of the Church of England and so on and so forth. Okay, so that's that kind of contextualizes his words. We see more uh, of that in um, people like uh, Spurgeon and um Uh, and and elsewhere. So we'll see that in a moment. Uh, On page 687, he says, So in the universal church are many particular congregations or communities of Christians who are as so many choice vines in God's sight. It also abounds with plants, some fruitful and some barren, as is signified by our Savior. Uh, commenting on Galatians 4, verse 26, the Jerusalem which is above is free and is the mother of us all, those words of Paul where he's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem, and he's commenting on that here in Tropologia, page 695. He says, By mother, in these scriptures, is meant the church of God, or as some expound it, the universal church. As God is a believer's father, so the church is his mother. Okay, so that's Benjamin Keech uh, commenting on Galatians 4.26. Tropologia, page 714. The whole family of Christ, the great prince of heaven and earth, I mean the whole universal church, he says, both militant and triumphant, exceeding is great, the one part of which is in heaven and the other on earth. So so now this kind of idea of, uh, of Hebrews uh, 12, you have come to Mount Zion and it talks about the the saints there, just men made perfect, and so on. And Keech is referencing that concept. Um, he's quoting uh, scripture, for, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Keech understands that whole family in heaven and earth to be the one church and body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so that's, uh, that's Benjamin Keech on the Universal Church. Uh, at, at minimum there, you can see that 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 Keech is understanding these texts like we've just laid them out like like I've just given my understanding similar to to that and um and you know Keech is not an exception to the rule in the 17th century most Baptists uh, have affirmed the universal church and have had a, a particularly nuanced uh, view of the universal church in contradistinction from Romanism and uh, the uh, the the Church of England, and so I think I think you know our, conf- our you know our our forerunners, our forefathers, Baptist forefathers in the 17th century, had a very well developed view of the universal church that would not only allow them to affirm catholicity, but at the same time distinguish true catholicity from the false Catholicity that you would get in Roman Catholicism or uh, the Church of England at the time. Let's move on to John Gill. There's quite a bit here to read from John Gill. It's it's pretty um, uh, squashed here on the screen so I'll you know if you don't have it up on full screen you might want to have it up on full screen if you're watching. If you're not watching of course just listen. I'll, I'll try to read it carefully and clearly. But he's talking about the church. Uh, This comes from his complete body of doctrinal and practical divinity, um, and he says this, "...as a general assembly called the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, which are written in heaven," quoting of Hebrews 12, verse 23, "...and which include all the elect of God that have been, are, or shall be in the world, and who will form the pure, holy, and undefiled, undefiled Jerusalem church state in the future." in which none will be but those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And this consists of the redeemed of the Lamb, and is the church which Christ has purchased with his blood. And who make up his spouse, the church he has loved and given himself for, to wash and cleanse and present to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. This is the body, the church of which Christ is the head, and in which he is the sole officer being prophet, priest, and king of it, it being not the seat of human government, as a particular church is, and this church is but one, though particular churches are many. So he's saying the same thing Keech did a minute ago. He's saying that this universal church is one church, even though there are particular churches that are many. To this may be applied the words of Christ. He goes on, my dove, my undefiled, is but one. Canticles, or the Song of Solomon, six uh, chapter 6, verse 9. And this is what sometimes is called by divines the invisible church. Not but that the whole number of God's elect is visible to him and known by him. In other words, it's called an invisible church, but not to the neglect of understanding that God sees who are his true saints. The Lord knows them that are his, and the election of particular persons may be known by themselves, by the grace bestowed upon them, and in a judgment of charity may be concluded of others, that, were, that they are the chosen of God and written in the book of life. But, he says, in other words, he means invisible church in this sense, all the particular persons and the number of them were never yet seen and known. John had a sight of them in a visionary way, and they will be all really and actually seen when the new Jerusalem shall descend from God out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, which will be at the second coming of Christ and not before. Till that time comes, this church will be invisible. It is sometimes distinguished into the church triumphant and militant, the whole family named of God in heaven and earth. The church triumphant consists of the saints in glory, whom Christ has taken to himself to be with him where he is, and this is continually increasing. The church militant consists of persons in the present state, which is said to be as an army with banner, Canticles 6:4). This is made up of such who become volunteers in the day of Christ's power, who put on the whole armor of God and fight the good fight of faith, and in this state it will continue to the end of the world and he goes on there is another in which the sense er, it there is another sense in which the church may be said to be catholic or general as it may consist of such in any age and in the several parts of the world who have true faith in christ and hold to him the head and are baptized by one spirit into one body have one spirit one lord one faith one baptism and one god and father of all and are called in one hope of their calling and this takes in not only such who make a visible profession of Christ, but all such who are truly partakers of his grace, though they have not made an open profession of him in a formal manner. And this is the church which Polycarp, or the early church father Polycarp, called the whole Catholic church throughout the world. And Irenaeus, the church scattered throughout the whole world to the ends of the earth, and Origen, the church of God under heaven, And this is the church built on Christ the rock, against which the gates of hell shall never prevail. Such a church Christ has always had and will have, and which may be, when there is no visible particular congregated church or a particular church gathered according to gospel order, and of this apostle seems to speak when he says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, Ephesians 3.21. So in this sense, in Ephesians 3 is another text we could have gone to earlier where it says, be glory in the church throughout all generations, the way Gill renders it, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. Well, what particular local church has existed throughout all ages? Well, not not one particular local church. Uh, but the people of God, Christ has always had his people. He has, he has always had those whom he has called and has kept by his Holy Spirit and the word, which is the gospel. So that is uh, John Gill saying much the same that uh, Benjamin Keach has already said. Uh, seconding that, you see here a pattern um, starting to form between Keach and Gill, and, and indeed they're not really stepping off any ground that uh, others had trod before them, uh, Francis Turretin um, and, and so on. Although when you get into the Presbyterians, uh, in the Pado Baptists, um, uh, they will have a different under. They will have some different nuances regarding the uh, the Universal Church, uh, and they will there will be a great deal of difference uh, among them in terms of those nuances uh, from uh, theologian to theologian, especially in the earlier years. Uh, but when you get to when you get to the Baptist theology or the Reformed Baptist theology or the particular Baptist theology that we see in uh, in the Confession and in Framers, uh, you know those who were involved in um, ratifying the confession, like Benjamin Keach. Uh, you see that this doctrine w- was was pretty well developed and nuanced uh, by the time someone like Keach and and John Gill uh, wrote somewhat extensively about it. The last uh, individual that I would like to cite is Pastor Spurgeon, and uh, we'll look at. Uh, Uh, what Charles Spurgeon has to say about the uh, universal church. Um, And he says this, this is uh, a work, uh, Spurgeon on the church is what it's called. I have a digital copy of it, but you may look on Amazon and see if you could get a print copy as well. Um, He says this, the temple is the church of God. And here, let me begin just by, by just observing that when I use the term church of God, I use it in a very different sense from that in which it is sometimes understood. Now he's about to distinguish a Baptist understanding of the universal church from that of Church of England, from that uh, understanding of the Church of England. He says it is usual with many Church of England people to use the term church as specially applying to the bishops, archdeacons, rectors, curates, and so forth. These are said to be the church, and the young man who becomes a pastor of any congregation is said to enter the church. Now, I believe that such a use of the term is not scriptural, and this is kind of what Keach was getting at earlier uh, as well. Spurgeon goes on, I would never for one moment grant to any man that the ministers of the gospel constitute the church. If you speak of the army, the whole of the soldiers constitute it. The officers may sometimes be spoken of first and foremost, but still, the private soldier is as much a part of the army as the highest officer. So what was going on here in the Church of England was this language, this vocabulary was starting to be used that implicated the vicars or the priests in the Church of England as themselves, the church, which vested with them a a sort of authority that did not belong to them biblically and a, a kind of status that did not belong to them biblically. So, so Spurgeon is saying, that's not how we should use the, the term church. It doesn't belo- that, that title does not belong to a single individual, say a vicar or a priest in the Church of England. So we're not using it in that way. When we speak of the universal church, he says, we mean uh, all of God's elect, uh, all of God's people that he's had in all, in all ages, um, in heaven, on earth, and so on. He goes on, and it, is, and it is so in the church of God. All Christians constitute the church, is what he says. Any company of Christian men gathered together in holy bonds of communion for the purpose of receiving God's ordinances and preaching what they regard to be God's truths is a church. So here he's distinguishing the local church from what he's about to call the universal apostolic church. He's saying any company of Christian men gathered together in a locality, in holy bonds of communion. They've covenanted together for the purposes of receiving ordinances and the preaching of the word, which can only happen in a local uh, area, is a church, is a particular congregation. But he goes on, and the whole of these churches gathered into one, in fact, all the true believers in Christ scattered throughout the world constitute the one true universal apostolic church built upon a rock against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. He's using very similar language there to Gill and Keech. Then he says, by way of qualification, do not imagine, therefore, when I speak at any time of the church, that I mean the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is an office in the Church of England. He's saying, do not think that when I speak uh, at any time of the church, or we could say of the Universal Apostolic Church, that I'm speaking of the Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm not speaking of him. I'm speaking of the whole company of the elect, he says. I'm not speaking of the Bishop of London and some 20 other dignitaries and the whole host of ministers that are involved in the Church of England. He says, I'm not speaking of that. I'm speaking of God's elect, the whole church, which is comprised of peculiar, peculiar or particular local congregations. Um... Part of it exists in heaven. Uh, we saw with Gill. Part of it exists on earth, and so on. And I would like to make another qualification, uh, if I can. Uh, Spurgeon was it, was dealing with the Church of England. I think today, what we have to deal with and 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 qualify uh, is the unholy uh, ecumenical movement. Now, I say unholy ecumenical movement because the word. Uh, um, ecumenicism or ecumenical has been used historically to mean something good. It's just Christians getting along with Christians. But that that term, along with the word Catholic, along with the word universal, have been a, abused by modern theological liberals to be as inclusive as possible of uh, denominations or quote unquote, churches, that we would not want to fellowship with at all, uh, and in many cases uh, would not even uh, call churches, uh, or at least true churches. They would not be called true churches. So um, for example, when, when Baptists use the word universal church, or when they use the word um, Catholic Church. They're not meaning number one. They're not meaning Roman Catholicism. They're not meaning the Church of England. They're not meaning anything like that. You just saw what Spurgeon, how Spurgeon qualified it, and Gill and Keach, and the, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, but they're also not meaning this kind of unholy ecumenicism uh, or ecumenicism, where you have uh, basically liberal denominations that will say, well, uh, you. You know, they'll draw a pyramid or something like that, and they'll say you have, you know, like Rome over here and Eastern Orthodoxy over here and the liberal branches of Methodism over here. And, uh, and, you know, all these different uh, traditions, so to speak, and they'll lump all those together and say that's the universal church. You know, so, so it grants validity to institutions or organizations that we wouldn't want to grant validity to as true churches, for example, Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy. And so when the Baptists use the term, whether you're looking at the Confession of Faith, the Second London, or whether you're looking at someone like Spurgeon or Keach or Gill, and they all qualify very heavily about what they mean uh, because they were dealing with their own controversies related to the subject in their own day. Uh, But when when you hear the word universal apostolic church or when you hear the word Catholic church uh, coming from men like that or coming from myself— it's not—obviously, it doesn't mean the, the liberal version of that or the abuse, the, the liberal abuse of that. And it also doesn't mean uh, the Roman Catholic abuse of that or the uh, Anglican abuse of that. It has a very specific meaning, which has been outlined here in the words of these men. Uh, and the meaning is the universal church, when it's used, it means all of God's people who are elect, called, in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. And all of those elect are to, in this present state, to use the language of Gill and Spurgeon, are to gather together in local churches for the reception of ordinances and the preaching of the word and the fellowship of the saints and the prayers. And those local churches, according to a Baptist polity, operate autonomously. There is no earthly head of the universal church that kind of governs all of the local churches. Uh, There's none of that going on. Christ is the only head of his body. Christ is the only head of his bride, to use the language of Ephesians 5. Um, And and so uh, the local churches, in terms of their government, um, have reference to Christ as their head and operate autonomously, in not autonomously, absolutely, because Christ is their head, but autonomously from any other human institution or human government. The, uh, each local Baptist church has everything it needs within its individual polity to function as a local church, and that's why we call it autonomous church or the uh, the local uh, uh, um, uh, autonomous church. Hopefully that has... Uh, been a helpful clarification as to what the universal church means or the Catholic church. Uh, of course the word Catholic just means one, it means united. Um, and indeed God's people are united, one spirit, one faith, you know, one body. It's that language of Ephesians four, and that's the historical meaning of the term Catholic. Uh, and I think it should still be used, um, uh, cause it can be helpful. Um, the universal. When we say universal, it just means one. It's one, the one church. Paul says there's one body in Ephesians four. You see how these men—Spurgeon, Gill, Keach—have understood that oneness, that universal, that universality of the church. It just means all of God's elect everywhere, uh, at all times and in all places, whether in heaven the church triumphant or on earth the church militant. Uh, the universal church isn't confined to any one local church, but I will say that the only way in which the universal church becomes visible is in the local church. And so this is why the uh, Second London Confession in, in, in chapter 26, uh, paragraph 1, affirms a doctrine of the universal or Catholic church, but at the same time says it may be called invisible. They're not granting a visible status to the Catholic church Because to do so would be to commit the same errors of Rome and and the Church of England, to visualize some kind of institution here on earth, uh, which would be problematic. Uh, The only way in which the universal church manifests or becomes visible is in the local church. Uh, In other words, the the practical, visible way in which a Christian um, participates and justifies his claim to participation in the universal church or in the one body of Christ is through life lived with the local church in and with the local church. So hopefully that's been helpful. Uh, this is definitely a a doctrine of the universal church or the universal apostolic church, what Spurgeon calls it, which I like, uh, is, is a doctrine that is just all over the place in, uh, historic Baptist literature. Um, I will, I, I cited the sources that, um, were used so if you want to find those resources on your own and read them for yourselves, which I I would encourage you to do, you can rewind this video and look at that. Um, uh, if you're listening, uh, you you I'll I'll just tell you you can you can look at Tropologia, which is uh, Keech's work, Gill uh, a body of practical doctrinal and practical divinity, and uh, Charles Spurgeon. Of course, you can find stuff on this throughout Spurgeon's works, but. Uh, it would be his work on the church. So hopefully that was useful. Um, I would say that another place where Keech uh, speaks of, and actually before before I close out here, I'll read one other thing from from Benjamin Keech that is not in Tropologia. This is in the glory of a true Church, which is a a small volume that he wrote on on the New Testament church. But he says, uh, concerning a true and orderly gospel church, this is paragraph 2 in that section, he says, The beauty and glory of such a congregation, so he's talking about the local church, the beauty and glory of such a congregation consists in their being all converted persons, regenerate church membership, or lively stones, to use the language of First Peter 2.5, being by the Holy Spirit and faith of the operation of God, united to Jesus Christ, the precious cornerstone and only foundation of every Christian Okay so listen to how he works from the uni- from the local church to the universal church. Jesus Christ is the turning point here, the precious cornerstone and only foundation of every Christian as well as of every particular congregation, local church, and of the whole Catholic Church. He uses that language. Now he's not talking about Roman Catholicism. He's talking about the true Catholic Church. Which is all saints who have been called by God into the faith by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of Grace, um, and, and and the word Catholic Church that he uses there is synonymous to his use of the Universal Church elsewhere. And the same is true with Gill. The same is true with uh, Spurgeon and other uh, prominent Baptists that we could uh, talk about. Anyway, hopefully that was helpful. God bless you guys. If it was helpful. Give this a share if it was helpful for you. Maybe it'll be helpful for someone else. Have a wonderful day.